So here we are in our study through Galatians and the verses that we read together. Those are the verses that we're going to look at today. We're going to uh, do, do just a quick overview of verses 1 through 10, and then we'll come back and we'll zero in on verses uh, 4 and 5. But just a quick um, setting of the scene. Uh, remember, uh, Paul is writing this letter to the churches in Galatia. The, the Galatians are um, non-Jewish. They're, they're Gentiles. So they've, they've come to put their faith and trust in Christ through uh, the ministry of Paul. He brought them the gospel and they received the gospel and they received it with uh, hearts full of joy. And the, the, the picture that you get is that it was just, um, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience for the churches there living in um, love and unity and, and joy and grace and, you know, just the, the kind of place that you would want to be among God's people. That, that's how it originally was uh, after uh, Paul had ministered there and the gospel had come. But then uh, we know that, that Paul having departed, some false teachers came in and they began to suggest that Paul's gospel wasn't really the true gospel. Actually, the true gospel consisted of uh, aspects of the Mosaic law that the people needed to come under. And they also insinuated or maybe even boldly stated that, that Paul wasn't really a true apostle, that he wasn't part of that original band uh, that were, you know, with Jesus during his, his public uh, ministry and that Paul couldn't be trusted. His gospel couldn't be trusted because he wasn't uh, a, a true apostle. And they also evidently claimed that they were connected with the true apostles back in Jerusalem. And they uh, sort of presented themselves as, you know, we're bringing you the true gospel that comes down from the true apostles in Jerusalem. So in the first two chapters, Paul is just refuting all of that nonsense because, uh, you know, Paul, he not only has a personal relationship with Christ, not, not only was he commissioned uh, by Christ and taught the gospel by Christ, uh, commissioned as an apostle by Christ, but he also has a personal relationship with the apostles in Jerusalem. And so here in these first two chapters, he's uh, rehearsing some of the things that happened in the past in regard to his relationship with the apostles. And so he's basically just setting the record straight showing the Galatians that uh, these false teachers have duped them and that uh, Paul's message was absolutely accurate, that he was a true apostle and that he had a genuine relationship with the apostles there in Jerusalem. Now, Paul's defending himself, but he's not doing it um, for his own sake. He's not defending himself because he's worried about his reputation. He's defending himself because in defending himself, he's, he's defending the gospel. And so he, he's wanting to um, make sure to maintain the pure gospel. That's his whole uh, point here. He talks about um, a false gospel, another gospel, a different gospel, which he said is not really a gospel at all. That was the gospel or the so-called gospel that the false teachers were uh, bringing to the Galatians. So as we pick up in chapter two, verse one, we pick up in the story. Now, Paul had just talked about um, having had a, a meeting with Peter and that was three years after his conversion. He, three years later, he went to Jerusalem. He met with Peter. He spent 15 days with Peter. And um, he talked about that. But then he talks about now another visit to Jerusalem some 14 years later. So he said, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, 
but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So again, the false teachers say Paul's not a true apostle. He doesn't really know the apostles. He's not, you know, part of that original band. Paul says, no, actually I do. And let me tell you about a trip that I took to Jerusalem with Titus and with Barnabas and about a private meeting. He says that he had with uh, those in Jerusalem and he refers to them as uh, those who were of reputation. So he's talking about the, those who were seen as the leading apostles at the time. And he's going to mention them by name here in just a moment. He said, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So these men are coming to the Galatians saying, you need to be circumcised. Paul says, I took Titus with me, a Gentile, to Jerusalem, and I met with the leaders there, and they didn't say that Titus needed to be circumcised. So he's showing that there's a discrepancy in their story, the story of the false teachers. And so then he goes on and he says, and this occurred, this meeting, this private meeting occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something, they added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, gospel for the Gentiles, as the gospel for the circumcised, the Jews, was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the Jews also worked effectively toward me or in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. So again, Paul is just setting the record straight. And notice that he refers to the, um, the leaders, James, Peter, and John. He refers to them as those who seem to be pillars. You see, Paul is stated in no uncertain terms that he's not in any way inferior to these other apostles. Even though he wasn't there and part of that original band, his apostleship is just as legitimate as theirs. And he says, you know, they, they added nothing to me. Um, they, they seemed to be, they, they were looked up to, they were respected. And that was okay. That was legitimate. But but Paul just wants the Galatians to understand that he has that same authority that those in Jerusalem had as well. So they added nothing to me. They didn't teach me anything that I didn't already know. Uh, Paul, as he had already stated, he learned um, the gospel from Christ himself. So now in verses four and five, that's where we want to focus our attention today. And let me read those to you again. And I want to read them first from my uh, normal translation, the New King James Version. And then I want to read them to you from the NLT, the New Living Translation. But this is what it says. It says, and this occurred. So it's this private meeting that occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Now, let, let listen to it from the NLT. Some so-called Christians, false ones really, who were secretly brought in, they sneaked in to spy on us and to take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their religious regulations. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel for you. So 
I, I want you to just for a minute, I want you to think about what the scene that Paul is, is painting here. These, these legalists, these, um, these advocates of the Jewish law, they're coming in to the Christian assemblies, not to worship, but they're coming in to spy on the liberty that the Christians had. This, this is very much like what happened during the public ministry of Jesus. Remember, Jesus would go into the synagogue and he would preach and oftentimes he would heal somebody or something. And the religious leaders of the time, they would go into the synagogue and they would sit there not to hear the message, but they were waiting for Jesus to do something that they considered contrary to the law. Oftentimes it was the Sabbath day. And so they were just waiting for Jesus to break the Sabbath. That's what they were there for. And what, what a pathetic thing to think that there were and there still are sometimes people who all they're really wanting to do is they're wanting to find fault. They're just looking at any little thing that, that is inconsistent with their view of the way things ought to be, and then they want to, to find fault for that. So they're, they're spying out their liberty. They're looking to say, oh, look, they're doing this. Oh, did you, did you see what they did over there? Oh, you know, that, that liberty, they're spying it out. And their motive is they want to bring these people into bondage. You know, and, and how sad and tragic that there are people that infiltrate the church who really come in with the intention of criticizing and finding fault and judging and basically just wanting to put people under bondage. Happened then, it happens today as well. So what we see here with Paul, notice he uses this very strong language. He says, but we refuse to give into them for a single moment. You see, Paul understood that you, could, you couldn't give an inch when it comes to the gospel of grace. It's either all grace or it's not grace at all. That Paul said that in uh, Romans, as a matter of fact. You're either saved by grace, sanctified by grace, carried home to heaven by grace, or you're not. It's not, it can't be both. It's the minute works enter the picture, then grace is out of the picture. And so Paul says he doesn't, he's not giving them one minute of time. He's not giving them one inch that he might preserve the truth of the gospel. And so what we see with Paul is that Paul was contending for the gospel of grace. He fought for the gospel of grace. And it's something that every generation of Christians is called uh, at some time or in some way to do. And so we want to look at three things. We want to look, first of all, at the, the message of the gospel of grace. We want to make sure that we understand what we're talking about when we speak about grace. Then we want to look at the enemies of grace and then we want to look at how to uh, ourselves contend for grace. So first of all, what is the message of the gospel of grace? When we talk about grace, and we talk about grace, don't we, right? Christians talk about grace. And we talk about it quite, quite uh, frequently. Uh, I remember as a boy um, growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, and I remember the term sanctifying grace. And I never quite understood exactly what that was. But later on in life, when I understood what grace was, and then I looked back on sanctifying grace, and I, re I remember reading a quote from uh, uh, one of the you know, publications from the Catholic Church. It talked about you know, earning the sanctifying grace. Well, if you understand grace, you know that putting earning alongside of it, you just uh, contradicted what grace is. There's no such thing as earning grace. The point of grace is that it's unearned favor. And so grace is God's undeserved favor that saves us, sanctifies us, and leads us safely home to heaven. So when we're talking about the gospel of grace, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about God's unmerited favor. God bestowing favor on us sinners that we don't deserve, that we haven't earned, that we could never earn. And that grace results in our salvation, which is the forgiveness of our sins and the deliverance from the power of sin and ultimately the glorification of our bodies in the new heaven and the new earth with the Lord. 
Um, one writer said this uh, regarding grace. He said, the gospel of grace is that while Christians are in themselves still sinful and sinning, yet in Christ we are accepted and declared righteous. You see, this was the big revelation that was brought back in the, um, the 16th century in what we call now historically the Reformation. You see, for centuries, this idea was lost. It was there with the apostles. Paul was fighting for it here. But at a certain point in church history, uh, the, the contenders lost the battle. And so grace went into obscurity. And so from, you know, maybe the, the 5th century, 6th century, on to the 16th century, the common understanding of salvation was that you basically did something to contribute to your salvation. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. That's all well, fine, and good. You believe in him, but then you've got to add to that. And it was this, this gospel of grace, this rediscovering of being declared righteous through faith in Christ that brought about the great spiritual revolution that is known historically as the Reformation. But again, let me read to you that quote. It says, the gospel of grace is that while Christians are in themselves, in themselves still sinful and sinning, yet in Christ we are accepted and declared righteous. This is the reality. This, this is the fact that we are still sinful and we still sin. And anyone who says, well, not me, just needs a dose of reality. Yes, you, and yes, me, and yes, all of us. We're still sinful. We still have a sinful nature. We still have sinful tendencies, and we still sin, right? But then we say, but, but I don't sin like that person. Okay, that's not the point. The point is we still sin. Whether we sin like that person or not isn't really uh, the thing, but that's sometimes where we get um, a little bit confused because we think, well, we're not sinning like that person, or maybe we're not sinning even like we used to, but the truth of the matter is we still sin. But despite that, we are accepted and declared righteous. How? Through faith in Christ, because the righteousness of Christ is given to us, and we are accepted in Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, 6, we are accepted in the beloved. Now, Martin Luther, I was referring to the Reformation a moment ago. Luther was a key figure in the Re Reformation. He said this. He said, salvation by grace alone is not just one doctrine among others. It is the article by which the church stands or falls. He said that salvation by grace alone is hard to accept and hard to hold on to. In his famous commentary on Galatians, Luther wrote, this doctrine cannot be beaten into our ears too much. Yes, though we learn it and understand it well, yet there is no one who takes hold of it perfectly or believes it with all his heart, so frail a thing as our flesh and disobedient to the spirit. It's so true. This, this doctrine cannot be preached enough. And really, the theme, if you wanted to find a theme for the New Testament, the New Testament, the theme is the grace of God. That's the whole message of the New Testament, that God has not dealt with us according to our sins, but he's dealt with us uh, in mercy and in grace through Jesus Christ. Now, grace, as we see here, has always had its enemies. And the number one enemy of grace is religion. Religion is the number one enemy of grace. And, and I, I referenced this before, but let me just say this again. The, the interesting thing as you go through Galatians specifically, and Romans as well, but, but Galatians, you see that, that Paul is battling something that we at times wouldn't even recognize we needed to battle. Because even as Christians, we oftentimes embrace all different kinds of legalism and we don't even sometimes see it for what it is. Or if we do see it, we don't think that it's that big of a deal. But Paul saw it as a big deal. He saw it as something that we had to fight against. Religion is the great enemy 
of grace. And this is the battle that Jesus fought. This is the battle that Paul fought. This is the battle the reformers fought. And it's the battle that uh, every generation of Christians has to fight to some degree. Now, when I say religion, what I'm talking about is any system that depends on human merit for divine acceptance and approval. All of the religions of the world are the enemies of grace. Every single one of them, because they all teach that your acceptance or approval with God is through your own efforts. You have to abide by certain rules. You have to uh, perform certain rituals. You have to keep certain commandments. All of the religions of the world have that in common. And all of the religions of the world uh, are completely void of grace. There's no, there's no such thing as grace. So the religions of the world are actually the enemies of grace. But like I said, sometimes that enemy of, of religion can make its way into the church. And that's where we have these battles. That's the battle that Paul was fighting in Galatia. But let's just think for a moment about um, the enemies of grace in the ministry of Jesus. Of course, it was the, the religious leaders who were the primary opponents of Jesus, remember. They were the ones who opposed him. We read in the, the gospels that the common people the average person, the person that wasn't a part of that uh, religious elite, that those heard him gladly. The common people heard him gladly. The sinners heard him gladly. Jesus even commented to the religious leaders of his day. He said, the prostitutes and the drunkards and the tax collectors, they enter the kingdom before you. And Jesus said that actually these, these would not enter the kingdom. He said that uh, many will come from the east and the west and they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, but the children of the kingdom will be cast out. It was because in their religion and their self-righteousness through their religion, they were opposing the, uh, Jesus was really the incarnation he was the human manifestation of grace and they were opposing and resisting him. And, and as you read through the gospel accounts, it, it's really astounding. Lately, as I've been reading through the gospels myself, I'm seeing just the, the hostility toward Jesus was unbelievable. And it was always based on some act of grace on his part. So Jesus heals a man and you would think that everybody would go, praise the Lord, that guy was healed. But you know what the religious leader said? How dare he heal on the Sabbath day? He's not supposed to do that on the Sabbath day. We need to kill him. And so they plotted and they schemed how they could put him to death over those kinds of things. That's how intense this battle between grace and religion actually can be at times. But that was the same thing that Paul was facing as we read through the, the New Testament epistles and as we find Paul uh, suffering and facing opposition and all of that. 99% of the time, it's not from the pagans. I mean, that did occasionally happen, but it, the majority of the time, it wasn't the pagans. It was the religious leaders, again, who were personally attacking him or they were instigating the attacks against him. It was that hatred of grace coming from the religious. And as I said, all the way down in history, we come to the Reformation and we come to the battle against the institutionalized church. Now, when Luther and the other reformers, when they came to the church hierarchy, they didn't come suggesting that Christians go live carnal, sinful, wicked lives, and therefore they were rejected. You know what they came presenting grace. They came presenting that, you know, God freely forgives our sins in Christ. And for that, they were exiled. For that, they were driven out of the church. For that, they were persecuted. For that, in some cases, they were even put to death. And this kind of thing, it happens over and over and over again. And so in our day, everyone who has fought in some way or another against the idea that you have to do something more than simply believe in Jesus and his finished work on the cross in order to be more loved or accepted or blessed by God. Uh, anyone who has fought against that knows the reality of that battle against grace. Because that's what happens even sometimes in the church today. Now, I, 
you know, most Bible-believing churches would consent openly to a belief in God's grace. Of course we believe in God's grace. But then simultaneously, they would, and some, sometimes subtly, and, and sometimes even unconsciously, I think, they would bring in additional things to suggest that, well, if you really want to know God's love, if you really want to know his power, if you really want to know his blessing, then you, you've got to do these things as well. And yet, that is contrary to the, the, the biblical teaching. See, the, the scripture teaches, and I think this is a good way to understand it, the grace first principle. You see, the scripture teaches that grace precedes everything, and then all of our, our good works and all of our obedience and all of that proceeds from that work of grace in our life rather than the opposite. You know, sometimes we get the thing backward and we think, well, I, I want to get more grace, so I'll perform better for God. And if I do better, and if I behave better, and if I'm more diligent, and if I'm more this, and we, we get into this works thing, thinking that we're going to, through our works, we're going to attain more grace. No, it's the, that's the backward. We, we get the grace from God. We come to him, Lord, I just need your grace. And out of that supply of grace comes those things. So I love God and serve God and praise God and give my life to God, um, not to get his grace, but because I already have his grace. It's his grace that is the motivating factor in my life. Now, as we see with Paul, Paul was, he was a good contender and he fiercely contended against this because he was seeking to preserve the truth of the gospel. He wanted to make sure that the pure gospel was retained. And so he fought against all of these efforts to add something to. Whenever you have Jesus plus anything, you no longer have the gospel. When it's all said and done, when we're in heaven, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna praise God for his glorious grace. We're, we're going to sing. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as, shining as the sun, there's no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. What, what are we singing? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I know it's not a Bible verse, but it's based on the truth of scripture. When we're in heaven, we're not going to be talking about how deeply spiritual we were over against that other person that wasn't so spiritual. And what are they doing here? Because, you know, they weren't as spiritual as I am. None of that conversation is going to be happening in heaven. All of us are going to just be rejoicing in God's grace. Now, Paul was contending for grace in his day. We must, as I said, at times contend for grace as well. How do we do that? Well, here's the first thing that we have to keep at the forefront. If we're going to contend for grace, we can never forget our own experience of grace. We can never forget our own experience of grace, but this is what we do at times. We forget how much grace God showed us. Oh, we could see it clearly at one time. But you know, as time goes on and we move further and further away from our old lives and further and further away from that, you know, blatant gross sin that we were involved in, as we move further away from that, sometimes we forget. We forget how sinful we really were. We forget how uh, bad our situation really was. We lose sight of our own experience of grace. And because we forget that, we look at certain people around us and we don't think that there's necessarily enough grace for them. Because after all, look what they're doing. And after all, look at who they are. And, and yet, if we just stop and reflect on who we were, that will keep us in a place where we're experiencing the blessing of God's grace in our own lives. You know, we can, we can relive the blessing of God's grace every day by just looking back to where we were and where we are today and just thanking God for his goodness to get us there. 
And if we have that attitude, if we have that perspective, that will be the foundation for our ability to um, contend for grace. Now, like I said, we, we lose this at times. And, and I, I would think that all of us have had this experience. I know I have. I've had times in my life where I've just lost sight of, of the, how deep the pit really was that the Lord pulled me out of. And I see somebody that's in a pit and I think, ah, forget him, forget her. There, there, there's, there's not any hope. But then the Lord will come and remind me. He'll speak to me. You know, I, I read a great quote yesterday that um, correlates with this. D.A. Carson said this. He said, never, never underestimate the power of the love of God, and I would add the grace of God, to break down and transform the most amazingly hard individuals. You know, never estimate God's grace. Never under, uh, underestimate, never underestimate God's grace, never underestimate his love and how this is able to break even the hardest of individuals. I, I put this out on Twitter yesterday and then I noticed I got a like on it from a friend of mine who was uh, a heroin addict, a gang member, uh, a, a prisoner and, and all of those things. And right when I saw that he liked it, I thought, oh yeah, he likes this for sure because <laughs> this is him but it's me too. It's all of us. We cannot forget the pit that the Lord pulled us out of. We've got to remember that his grace, there's nobody that's beyond his reach. Nobody. God can reach down. And he did that for us. So we've got to remember our own experience of grace. Many years ago, when I was pastoring in London, I, there was a a man in, um, who came to Christ and, he was, uh, he's still a very good friend and, uh, you know, it was probably a year and a half or so of, of him regularly being um, subjected to the gospel. And he had never grown up in any context where he had heard the gospel or anything, but he was just regularly being subjected to the gospel. And one day, and, and I would, you know, share with him and talk to him about the Lord and, you know, nothing ever really gelled with him for a long time. But, but I remember one day after the message, um, I saw him and he had a very disturbing look. He just looked really troubled. And I, so I went up and I said, are, I said, are you okay? I said, um, didn't you understand the message today? And he said, I did understand it. That's why I'm so troubled. He was convicted. He was convicted of sin. And he ended up giving his life to Jesus. Now, he came from a very rough uh, life growing up in London, you know, classic Londoner. And um, so, you know, needless to say, he was fairly rough around the edges. And he was rough around the edges for quite some time. And I remember at a certain point, I remember this one day where he comes up and he says, you know, Brian, I'd like you to pray with me. And I said, okay. And so he starts to explain to me kind of the issues in his life. And he's using uh, a number of choice words that, you know, I of course, wouldn't use because I'm a Christian. And, and I remember sort of wincing every time he'd sort of throw an expletive in there. You know, it's like, right? Okay, we want to pray about that blanking thing and this blanking thing and that blanking thing here. Oh, whoa, okay. You know, I was getting kind of, you know, feeling kind of prudish there. Like, whoa, you know, I don't know about this language here. And it, it, just in a flash, as, as the Lord will do sometimes, the Lord just spoke to me and said, what is the matter with you? Why, why are you wincing? Why, are, why is this bothering you? And, you know, the Lord just said, look, this isn't bothering me. I'm okay. I can handle it. And you need to be able to handle this. And this is what the Lord said. Did you forget where you came from? Did you forget that every other word that used to come out of your mouth sounded like that? Did you forget how you grew up and the, you know, did, did you forget your background and all that? And I had to say at that moment, yes, I had kind of forgotten that. And the Lord had to remind me of my own experience of grace and how he saved me and how he was just patiently bringing me along in my life. So never forget your own experience of grace. Secondly, see if we're going to, this is my point. If we're going to contend for grace, we've got to be having our own experience of grace. And so secondly, we need to meditate on the life of Jesus and the great declarations of God's grace 
in the epistles, especially Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. Now, when you meditate on the life of Jesus, when you read the gospels, and I encourage you to read them over consistently, because when you do that, you get, you know, Jesus is right there. He's front and center. He's, of course, the, the theme of the gospels. And we see Jesus in his dealings with everybody. And we see his grace being poured out. And of course, oftentimes, I know for myself, when I'm reading through the gospels, I'm, I'm right in the story myself. It's like, oh yeah, there's me right there. And there's Jesus dealing with me. And this is what Jesus is saying to me. But it's in the gospels that we get this beautiful picture of the human manifestation of God's grace. Jesus was the walking uh, manifestation of the grace of God. So the more we meditate on the gospels, the more we see Jesus, the more we will understand God's grace. But then, as I said, the declarations of God's grace uh, in the epistles, especially Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. Now, I'm not saying don't read the rest of the New Testament, but what I am saying is that there are times and seasons in our life when we really need a re-grounding or maybe an initial grounding in grace. And this is where you're gonna find it, Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. When I meet people, which I do quite often, who are fearful about their eternal destiny, wondering if they're gonna really make it to heaven, are they, are they good enough? Or are they going to somehow fall off along the way? You know, when I, when I meet a person like that, I most often prescribe this for them. As a doctor of the soul, I prescribe this. I want you to go and I want you to read Romans 8 over and over and over again. Because Romans 8 is like the pinnacle chapter on the grace of God. It just takes all of the grace of God that Paul has been expounding in the first uh, seven chapters of Romans, and then it just brings it all to a head right there. And if you want to have security in your salvation, if you want to have confidence in God's mercy and goodness and love and his ability to sustain you and get you through and make sure you're in heaven, Romans 8, that's where you want to camp out. Because that's the message of Romans 8. And Romans 8 ends with that great promise that there's nothing that can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So we meditate on the life of Jesus and the great declarations of God's grace in the epistles. And then thirdly, in contending for grace, we must exemplify grace. We must exemplify grace. You see, grace calls for more than doctrinal subscription. It also must have a cultural manifestation or we unsay what we say. Meaning, having a, a cultural manifestation, we mean this. Meaning that it can't just be taught and thought, but it has to be worked into our church culture and practice as well. In other words, we have to live out this grace in our churches and in our own lives personally. You see, this is the key. And I love this part right here. It must also have a cultural manifestation or we unsay what we say. In other words, if we are not exemplifying grace, it doesn't matter how much we're talking about it or how much we have it theoretically down in our understanding, it doesn't matter because we unsay what we say. See, I could get up all day long and talk about the grace of God, but if an opportunity comes along to be gracious and I am not, then I just unsaid what I said. I just undid everything that I said. You know, it's ironic that you even have churches. You, you might have a church that's called Grace Chapel, and I'm not talking about any church because I, I, there probably is, there's probably lots of churches called Grace Chapel. I'm not talking about them, but I'm just saying, you know, you might have grace emblazoned there on the, on the front of your facility. You might have it everywhere, all over the place. You're, you're all about grace and you're talking about grace and you're preaching grace and there's something uh, amongst the Reformed people, the doctrines of grace and you can have all of that. But if you don't exemplify grace, if you're not gracious, if you don't show people grace, you just undid everything. You see, it's to no avail. We've got to show grace. And Jesus, of course, did that and Paul did that. And we have got to do that as well. We've got to show people grace. Now, in recent 
days, you know, with the election season and all of the things that have gone on, boy, I'll tell you, I, you know, the social media world is, is pretty crazy stuff out there. But, you know, the more I've, you know, seen of things that come up on social media, Facebook and Twitter and, you know, those different things, the more I see of that with, with Christians commenting, you know what I've come to realize? I've come to realize that many Christians who, who are, of course, technically saved by grace, they don't walk in grace. <laughs> they just have no grace. And, and I realize this is, a, this is a deficit in the church. But Luther said it, it's, it's hard to get it and it's hard to hold on to it. And you know, this happens. It's easy for grace to slip through our fingers and we grab onto something else. And you know, when, when Christians are judging and condemning and when they're hypercritical and when, you know, you didn't do this and so they're gonna, you know, attack you about that. When, when that kind of stuff goes on, this is what you know. You know that people aren't growing in grace because you know how you grow, you know you're growing in grace? You become gracious. It's not complicated. It's real simple. You become gracious. You become full of grace. And that's what we've got to do. We've got to exemplify the grace. We've got to show it. We've got to extend it toward others. People have got to see it in our lives. And as we just open the doors and as we invite and say, you know, come, as, as we've always done. But again, there are times when we can, just in our own minds even, we can get this legalistic thing going. And theoretically, we say, come. Yes, our church is open to anybody, but then somebody tries to walk through the door and we're like, oh, wait, 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 wait. No, no, we weren't talking about you. You see, we have to be careful with all of that stuff because we can easily end up being the enemies of grace when we get religious, when we get into a place where it's about religious regulations. Remember, the NLT uses that term, religious regulations, rules. It's all about, you know, these little things that become big things, much bigger than they were ever uh, intended to be. And so... We've got to live out this grace in our churches and in our own lives personally. And finally, be prepared because if you stand for grace, you'll suffer for grace. That seems so not right, doesn't it? But listen, all you gotta do is look at Jesus and all you gotta do is look at the apostles. They suffered for grace. They suffered because they stood for grace. And as we stand firm on grace, we, we will suffer. It was Paul's unbending commitment to grace that brought him into conflict with the legalist of his day. But the thing about Paul that we need to see is he didn't back down. He didn't back down. You know, legalism is, is oppressive. And remember what, the, what Paul describes here in, the, in these verses here, four and five, the, the, they crept in, they snuck in to spy out our liberty, wanting to bring us into bondage. And that's what people want to do. They want to bring you into bondage. Later on, Paul's going to make it clear that these false teachers were doing all of this that they might gain authority and control over the believers that they might um, elevate themselves into a place of importance by, you know, we have these people under our authority and they do things the way we tell them to do. And Paul was fighting against that. And he was willing to be unpopular, even controversial. He was willing to be misunderstood and misjudged he didn't relish it, but neither was he threatened by it. He knew that it must be so for the preservation of the gospel. Now, when you think about Paul, and as, as we're closing here, you know, Paul was, he was an interesting man. Uh, of course, he was an apostle, and he wasn't 
like we said, he wasn't only saying he was an apostle. The evidence of his apostleship was there in his life. And the other apostles recognized his apostleship. Peter recognized it. James, John, they, they recognized Paul's apostleship. But even for them, Paul was just a little bit too radical. And we're going to see as we move on in the chapter, we're going to see an encounter between Paul and Peter that wasn't pleasant because Peter was in the wrong and Paul just got in his face and challenged him. And here's my point. My point is that Paul was willing to be misunderstood. He was willing to be unpopular for the preservation of the gospel because the fact is in Jerusalem, they had compromised the gospel. They had compromised it. They had allowed Judaism to have an undue effect over the gospel. So when Paul comes to town, they're like, oh, Paul, we've been hearing these things. Look at, look at how many uh, look at how many priests there are. Look at how many Jewish believers. And they, they're hearing these things about you out there. They're hearing that you are teaching people to, not to follow the law. And, oh, Paul, just, you know, we got to get this sorted out. Here, take an oath and go into the temple and just let everybody know. Basically, they're saying, Paul, just let everybody know you're still a good Jewish guy and, you know, everything's okay. Everything's kosher. But you see, they had compromised. But think about this. Paul... Okay, remember, we're, we're dealing here with Peter, James, and John. Not James, the brother of John, but James, the brother of Jesus. He's the head of the church in Jerusalem. James, uh, the, the other James, of course, was dead by this point. He was um, martyred by Herod. But you've got James, the brother of Jesus, who, let, you know, he was probably a carpenter because that's what Joseph was. You have got Peter and John, who are fishermen, and you've got them kind of getting sucked into the whole Jewish religious thing. And then you've got Paul who's, what is Paul? He's like the rabbinical doctor. He's, he's the guy who knows Judaism inside and out. He knows it like the back of his hand. He knows it backward and forward. He knows all the nuances about it. He knows everything that's going on in the minds of these Judaizers. How? Because he used to be one. And where James and Peter and John could probably be intimidated by that. And therefore, they kind of gave in to it a little bit. And there was a bit of a compromise in Jerusalem. Paul was like, no, we are not doing that. We're not going there because I know where this leads. And it will lead us away from grace. And so he fought against it. And he was seen as a bit of a renegade. He was seen as a bit of a... Um, rabble rouser in, in some ways. He was kind of looked down upon as, you know, man, he's just a little too radical. But this sometimes is just what it has to be. Because if we're going to preserve the gospel, we've got to insist on grace and grace alone. Christ's finished work and nothing equals salvation. That's it. Christ's finished work. He did it. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. It just finally, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great preachers of the 20th century, he said this in regard to preaching a pure gospel of grace. He said, if your presentation of the gospel does not at times expose you to the charge of antinomianism. Now, antinomianism is uh, two Greek words put together that mean lawlessness. And we would, we would hear uh, antinomianism in our day described as things like easy believism or, you know, maybe a watered down gospel. So what Lloyd-Jones is saying is that your, if your gospel presentation does not at times expose you to the charge of easy believism or preaching a watered down gospel, he said, you're probably not putting it correctly. If you are not slanderously reported from the standpoint of antinomianism, it is because you do not believe the gospel truly and you do not preach it truly. Those are serious words. And you see what sometimes happens is in our endeavors to help God, because we're not quite sure he can do it himself, we put all these qualifications on the gospel. 
So, you know, okay, we're presenting the gospel of grace, but then here, but let me just add these things. And, and like I said, a lot of times it's not even intentional, but we're just thinking, oh, well, if I just tell people they can just believe in Jesus, then, you know, they're going to just get the wrong idea and they're going to think they can go out and live any way they want. And, you know, we got to help God out. No, the truth of the matter is salvation comes through simply believing in Jesus. And guess what? God takes it from there. God, I, to say God takes it from there is even not correct because God's been involved in the process the whole time. He brings you to the place where you receive Christ. And then when you receive Christ, you see the gospel of grace tells us, like I said to begin with, the gospel of grace saves us, sanctifies us, and leads us safely home. God's able. And so we can preach the gospel of grace. We can tell people, look, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of who you are, where you are, what you've been doing, and he will save you. And a person who believes that and genuinely does that is saved. And God makes sure that they will arrive to where he ultimately would have them to be. So Lord, help us. Uh, Lord, not to even be afraid to um, contend for grace and, and even to, to suffer ridicule or um, slander or whatever, the things that will happen, that have happened in history, that do happen still today. Lord, we want to stand firmly on the gospel of grace. And we thank you for Paul's example Lord, that he would not give an inch, that he wouldn't give a moment, that we might continue to know the freedom that we have in Christ. Lord, we thank you that we're free. We thank you that you saved us and you brought us into a love relationship with yourself. And Lord, that all of our obedience and everything is just rooted in that grace that you have worked in our hearts. Lord, we honor you today. We pray for more grace to be poured out upon us as a church, upon your church, upon the body of Christ, and Lord, upon our lives. And Lord, where we've drifted into legalism, where we've drifted back into religion, where we've picked up things along the way that really nullify grace, if we truly think about it, Lord, help us to just put all of that aside. And help us, Lord, to lay hold of the grace of God in a fresh and in a powerful way. Lord, pour out your grace afresh upon us. And Lord, the world outside, the world around us, Lord, we just see such a desperate need for people to come to Christ. And Lord, we know that it's your grace that's going to do that too. So Lord, pour out your grace in convicting power and lead people to the Savior and use us in some way to that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.